Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. Hey everybody, this is Bill Manning. This is Studio C41. I have the game with me. We'll go ahead and go around the table. Hello, I'm Kevin Terrell. I'm here again. And also with me is... Hey, thanks. Steven Wallace here. And last but not least... It's just me again. It, it's Michael. Well, we are going to dive into it. We have a lot to discuss tonight. We are going to be talking about a certain type of film that has been very emotional to a lot of photographers. It has been around for 75 years before it was discontinued. They wrote songs about it. They have named state parks after it. We are talking about Kodachrome. Kodachrome has a very, very interesting history. You know, Kodachrome has been known for more so the history that has been tied to it. World War II photos, your 1930s celebrities. You know, there's such a wide gamut of history that has been captured in color that has completely changed our perception of history. Kodachrome was not the first color film. So there were actually a couple processes. So we know that there have been the glass plates where you had your RGB, uh, red, green, blue color plates, where you actually took three individual pictures of glass negatives in different colors, and then you were able to overlay them to create a color image. And those are all like black and white images. They just would put different colored filters in front of right. the lens. And you can just still do the same thing, even if you have color filters now. Or I mean, if you take a, an image in uh, Photoshop, you can separate out the red, green, and blue, and you start taking away those layers, and all of a sudden, just the red layer is black and white, or just the blue layer is black and white. So there were actually two other colors, uh, or two color processes. These were actually considered uh, additive methods. Uh, you had the autochrome process and the, I'm sorry, I'm most likely going to pronounce this incorrectly, but defay color. Uh, so the, the main difference, and there's some really cool pictures, and I'll, I'll link it into the show notes or in the description, where autochrome used potato starch, and they used red, orange, green, and blue-violet dyes on a glass plate. They expose the image, and you can see that the greens and the and the blues and the reds were so vibrant, but they couldn't quite get, like, skin tones, and, and they were shot on glass plates. And so that, that was a huge limiting factor, and so there was this spark of interest on trying to get that onto an emulsion. The first iteration of Kodachrome is not exactly what... Uh, we kind of know what Kodachrome is now. It was still a, a subtractive process. So, Stephen, you probably know this a lot better than me. Uh, can you go in and dive into what exactly uh, is the difference between a subtractive process and an additive process? A subtractive process, you basically are bleaching away and removing unused parts of color. With an additive process, you're actually forming the color dyes onto the parts that are recording that color in the process. There you go. Yep. Glass plates and everything were very difficult to move around, and so a lot of people were trying to figure out an emulsion. So Kodachrome originally was uh, developed by a gentleman named John Capstaff, who actually used a blue-green and red-orange glass plate negatives, 
and it actually had an emulsion sandwiched in between those two glass plates. But we're still dealing with like glass plates at that time. So it wasn't until we fast forward into like the 1930s where we actually had two guys, uh, Leopold Godsky Jr. and Leopold Mainz, or Mains or Mans, they were actually university trained scientists, but they were actually professional musicians. So they actually came out with a three layer red, green, blue process. And uh, that is where Kodak uh, actually went and borrowed the name from Kodachrome. My assumption is to compete with, at the time, Autochrome, because Autochrome was starting to gain some popularity at that point because there really wasn't any other color process. And that came out in April 15th, 1935 with a whopping blazing speed of ISO 10. What? Yep, and uh, let's see here, and that came in in 16 millimeter film. That was primarily movie film, so, or they, they were trying to market into the motion picture. Uh, they were trying to really change how a movie was made, and so that's what their target market was. It wasn't until 1936, really, until they really came out with eight millimeter, 35 millimeter and honestly a format that I didn't I've never heard of uh, called 828 and that was more uh, for still camera so we're gonna fast forward a little bit uh, I mean there's some amazing photos that were taken at that time still I mean Stephen you actually have an amazing book that I had a chance to just kind of glimpse through that, that took place in the 1930s I think uh, the starting point was 1939 and then it kind of led up for this time period from 1959 on Kodachrome and so that was really I guess the era before Kodachrome 2 came out. So what exactly is that book that you got there? Yeah, so um, this is a book, honestly, I, I found, I want to say it was probably even like in the bargain section at a, a Barnes & Noble or might have even been Borders. Back That's in amazing that you even saw that. Yeah, and it was just um, one of the best, cheapest books I've ever picked up. Um, it's called uh, Kodachrome, The American Invention of Our World. Ellis uh, Ripper, um, R-I-J-P-E-R, put it together. It's just, it's a collection of images, mostly medium and large format. It talks a little bit about the history, kind of like you were saying, like the iconic status of Kodachrome, but I mean, just the print quality and, and plates they used in here. There's images of Eleanor Roosevelt, Eisenhower. There's a picture of like Stalin and FDR and Winston Churchill sitting together at Yalta that looks like it could have been taken 10 years ago instead of 70 years ago. So it's just, it's amazing and like how well some of these images have held up. Yeah, that, I mean, it, it really, and in, in this really changed my perspective on history because you know, we're so used to seeing like war movies on History Channel and stuff like that, where you have black and white. Probably in the late 2000s, we started seeing History Channel put out like color. You know, what was that series, World War II in color? Oh, it's and, a great series. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it really, t it just completely changes your perspective on history. I mean, I, I think we have become so insensitive to color that, I mean, we, it's it's such a norm now. I mean, we, we have it in digital sensors and everything and even color film these days that we just go, oh yeah, you know, that we tie that to today's you know standards but when you go and look back at your like your textbooks and stuff like that and you just see black and white images and then you see it in color and we're not even talking about the process where they you know editors go in and then colorize it it just totally changes your perspective on history and it really kind of brings it all together i mean oh, I think, sure. yeah in the photographic process no matter how good things get how great how accurate digital imaging will get there's always that layer of separation I think in, in studying history, you sometimes forget like 
no, this is the same world that happened in is the world in which I currently live. Yeah, I mean, there's color photos of like atom bomb testing in this book and stuff too. So it's just, it is a really, it's a beautiful window on this this history, this time period. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's an amazing book. I just glanced through it. I'm totally convinced I'm going to buy that book. For for the listeners, I will find the ISBN number for it and all that stuff, and I'll include it in the description, the show notes, to make sure that you guys are able to get it. Because there's certain photographers, like I mean, of course, Ansel Adams is on my shelf. Yosef Karsh is on my shelf. You know, there there's just certain books. I think you have to have a photography book that you can refer to for inspiration. Because, I mean, we all hit that area where I'm kind of just like, oh, man, I'm just not feeling it. I really am looking for something that can just inspire me. And yeah, you can dive into Instagram and stuff like that. But, I mean, I, I find my true inspiration in books. Uh, so we're going to fast forward a little bit. And we actually come into Kodachrome which was released in 1961. Speeds were more than doubled from 10 to 20 freaking five. Mm-hmm. And then 62, they introduced ISO 64. Around that time, they also transitioned into what we know as the K14 process. Woo! It was actually a very, very complex process. It was not very friendly to the environment. Partly what made the Kodachrome process even more difficult as we progressed through time and became more environmentally conscious. And so it made it a little bit harder for Kodaks. The overallness of, of Kodachrome and the fact that it was, yeah, it was an environmentally friendly but it was produced different colors and and it was more stable over longer periods of time and stuff like that was what was the way we used to sell it anyway yeah i mean i know for me working in the lab too i think we would always we get people bringing in boxes of old slides and you'd immediately tell the difference between like kodachrome slides and old fuji slides or old ectochrome or wheat chrome or anything they would immediately be they'd all be washed out and the yellows would be faded out and they'd be this terrible blue cast and then you pull out a kodachrome slide and it is immediately like vibrant and clear and beautiful and doesn't take much correction at all to it so there was there was a clear difference even on like my end working in the lab i got into working in labs a little later a bit later than michael did and even still now like working in labs and seeing slides and kodachrome slides it's you see there's a marked difference in the longevity of it versus old D6 processes. Right, and I think you even mentioned in that book that the lifespan of Kodachrome was insanely different. Laboratory tests show that the least stable image dyeing yellow will only fade about 20% in 185 years. Wow. Then, granted, that's when it's stored in the dark at, you know, uh, 75% or 75 degrees and 40% humidity. Michael, I'm sure you have people that are coming in pretty frequently with, like, Kodachrome slides that are just like, hey, I found this in my dad's attic or something like that, and, you know, I just want to get these scanned. I mean, do you, do you frequently see stuff like that? We, we get a lot of We get a lot of slides, and, you know, we can tell the difference between, you know, Kodachrome and, and you know, uh, Ektachrome, like, especially early Ektachrome. Early, early slide, you know, the E-series, the different series of stuff, you know, you to reagent with a red light and right. all this stuff, and they didn't hold up very well. It wasn't until E6 that they got a, a more stable, more environmentally friendly process to it. You know, we, we get a lot of slides in here that you basically, what you've got left is the red layer. Wow. I mean, you know, so you're ended up, we, we, to try to correct it, we're, you know, adding just a a ton of cyan to try to bring what other colors may still be sort of latently in the slide. But then you get a, a good Kodachrome slide in here and you're like, oh, look, these colors. Yeah, yeah. and that, that's the experience I've had with Kodachrome, like in my father's slides. And 
he never kept any of his negatives or slides, stored them properly. It's sort of been like in a thing where I like go to the attic and I'm like, oh, look at that. There's slides where they shouldn't be in this hot, humid <laughs> attic. Oh, neat. But, but going through and scanning them, I've scanned probably around 2,000 of my dad's slides. The Kodachrome looks great. Yeah, the, yeah, there's some minor distortions, right? Because but it was of the a very resilient. Oh yeah, and, it, and he had a lot. He had a bunch of ectochrome as well. His early stuff, oh, it's just garbage. It is so blue. It's, <laughs> it's been a nightmare to scan. It's really impressive how well you know the, the Kodachrome slides have stood the test of time and stood the test of being stored improperly. And my guess is part of the majority of people who have slides still, they're in an attic or they're in some place they shouldn't right. be. They're not yeah. in the ideal situation. And that's a nice thing to know that, hey, your memories aren't gone forever. A lot of my coworkers who are not millennials are definitely uh, Generation X baby boomers and stuff like that. Their parents are passing away, right? And so I have one coworker, she's like, I have my father's Kodachrome slides. She's like, I need to get these scanned and everything and I need it. The, their idea of preserving family history, like I, it hasn't even come across. Like my parents have negatives in shoe boxes in their closet, you know? And it just brought me to the attention of like, you know, especially with film, I'm much more attentive to archiving, you know, and preservation. I start thinking about, you know, my grandparents' pictures and stuff that they've shot. I want to get a hold of all that and I want to digitize it all. Um, I know that the first couple processes involved, you know, black uh, black and white, where you developed the uh, film in black and white and then you, in the further steps that you added in uh, different dyes. Like processes we're used to now, if anybody's developed, you know, uh, color film at home or even worked in a lab, all of the colors happen in one bath and like in one right. process everything's developed in there like in even these six kits now you have like a developer and then you have a wash and then you have a color developer and a wash and a bleach fix and you're pretty much done in Kodachrome each separate color red green and blue had its own developing stage for it. So you basically like for starters you just like triple the process of what you do for E6 normally. And then there were some extra steps as far as the uh, well, there was washing and there was like a, a, a red light and a blue light for, for the various mm -hmm. and for colors. Yeah, so they actually involved like basically re-exposing the film in the midst of the process and reagenting it. It's so it's essentially like with a particular color light causing that to bring out other aspects of the image. Kodachrome was a very complicated process, and I think that was kind of what led to its own demise. Oh, for sure. Um, in the 1980s, 1990s, E6 started becoming much more popular. Uh, Fujifilm. Uh, so Kodak had its you know downfalls before digital really became you know consumer. Uh, they had a really hard time with Fujifilm being introduced into the American markets because there were government subsidies. And so that's what really allowed them to undercut Kodak and Kodachrome. Their sales just started dropping after that. You know, you started seeing, you know, as early as 1996, where Kodachrome 64 in 120 format was discontinued in 1996. I mean, that was way before, you know, digital wasn't even really introduced until and what? I like never even had a concept of Kodachrome being in anything but 35 millimeter. Right. Probably because we would never like see 120 slides that often, even ones that had been developed, just because 35 was so ubiquitous for people to shoot and have for personal yeah, stuff. Yeah, for their vacation. You yeah, around exactly. Christmas and say, that's what we did this past summer. Yeah. But, but yeah, so that to say, that it, it was just gone so quickly that, you know, I guess I had never even really thought about it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, it just I'm just looking at these dates here that I have here. Kodachrome 64 and 120 in 1996. And then Kodachrome 25 altogether completely in 2002. Uh, and again, these are all just in 25 was completely discontinued in 2002. That was really right when... I want to say like the Nikon D1 was like really first introduced, you know, and even then that camera was still, you know, like four or five thousand dollars. Like that wasn't even consumer market at that point, you know, and even at that point, you know, you had professional photographers were like digital. I'm not going to shoot that. I'm going to continue shooting film. And then uh, Kodachrome 40 and Super 8 was discontinued in 2005. Oh, you know, here we go. I'm looking at this book. Kodachrome sheet films were uh, supplied up until, from 1938 until 1954. Wow. So they discontinued sheet film and Kodachrome that early. Wow. Wow. And just decided to focus on, like, the home market. Of like you know yeah yeah slides and yeah exactly like like that whole mentality exactly. medium format thirty five millimeter well I mean they married themselves so much into the the idea of projection the, the right. Kodak the slide yeah. cares I remember talking to my dad like a couple months ago talking about Kodachrome and slides and he was like wait they made slide film other than thirty five like he didn't even know as a photographer <laughs> yeah. he had no idea that you could buy any format of or any manufactured uh, slide film bigger than thirty five he's like well they didn't make four by five projectors I'm like well that's Okay, whatever. Well, and like you said, build <laughs> that list. They made it in one ten. They made APS slide film, mm-hmm. like when APS first came out. I've got a roll of that. Just someone found it at a flea market and gave it to me. So it's just sitting on open on my on my shelf. Mm. Wow. But um, so back into the really the demise of Kodachrome. Um, so Kodachrome 40 and Super 8 uh, fell in two, June of 2005, and then Kodachrome 200 in November of 2006. And I want to say that was probably right when digital started to really start, you know, seeing yeah, uptick, you sure. know, mm-hmm. in the consumer market and stuff like that, like more in your point and shoots and stuff oh, like sure. that. Yeah. And then finally, Kodachrome 64 and 64 Pro. In 35 millimeter, were discontinued in June of 2009, and uh, there is one gentleman who officially owns the title of shooting the last roll of Kodachrome off the production line, and that is Steve McCurry. And uh, Steve McCurry uh, is most known for his National Geographic work, most notably known for Afghan Girl, and that image just has, I mean, from what I've read, I mean, it was, some people had considered it the modern day Mona Lisa. A girl's wearing a headscarf and just the most piercing blue eyes. So I think we've all seen that image, whether we realize it or not. Yeah, that it was that Steve McCurry picture. Yeah, his whole body of work in general work is extremely impressive. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he he's one of those that will fall in the the Hall of Fames of the Ansel Adams, and and so there there was actually an episode um, made, uh, I think it was by National Geographic, um, in 2010 where he took that last roll, loaded it up into his Nikon camera, and just did one last shoot and took it to Dwayne's photo where they process it. Now, what they didn't make it very clear is that Dwayne's continued to process film for a good bit. I think it was until December 2010 um, where they stopped uh, processing Kodachrome. So, uh, but he definitely had the last roll off the production lines at Kodak. So the last roll ever made by Kodak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and even some of the images that he produced um, off that, I was like, oh, I would love to have a print of that. So yeah, it was really interesting to see Kodachrome really fall before digital really, you know, 
because everybody said that digital was what killed film, but you know, specifically for Kodachrome, I want to say that's not true. Yeah, well, I think we talked a little bit about it, but like the advent of good, a good archival E6 film is really what killed Kodachrome. Right. Because you can, I mean, you can process E6 at home today. Even. I know a ton of people, it's easier to process than color negative film is at home. It was available in large format, medium format, different varieties of it. It was, you know, I gave more options, more speed. It was, uh, it was really heavily adopted by the um, news, magazine, fashion industry right. um, as kind of a standard. You know, they were companies, geez, I did a, um, when I was in school, I did a tour of a studio, um, this was just in 2008 maybe, of a studio here in Atlanta that did a lot, does a lot of work for uh, commercial work for like Home Depot and places and they had some clients who still wanted stuff shot on slide film even 2008 because that was their workflow right. so all that to say that, that all of that like just kind of usurped out of that and then people weren't even when I was a kid we never looked at slides we had printed pictures hmm. right. so I think yeah. I think it's a mix of E6 and also ready availability of printed photos at home oh yeah because you didn't need a projector to look at it anymore well, yeah. and, and society was getting heading into a direction where we want it faster, we want it now, yeah. you know, and, that, and that, that, that instant gratification process where, you know, Kodachrome, you were still having to send it out to K-Labs. You couldn't get that in a one-hour lab. Right, exactly. So, and I think that was kind of leading up to, you know, now digital, you can look on the back of your camera and go, yep, that was exposed correctly. Now I need a you know increase exposure, decrease or decrease or whatnot. So, um, but I had an interesting run in with somebody at the High Museum. So I was done looking at the exhibit. I was done seeing Andy Warhol. Which, if you haven't seen Andy Warhol's exhibit, you, you have to. I mean, if you if you have any appreciation for art, you have to go see Andy Warhol. Hate Andy Warhol. See, okay, but here's the thing: like, your your his work may not be appealing oh, to exactly. you, but, like, but he, I mean, he was... As, as a movement, like the yes, whole pop art movement absolutely. and like what he actually established, I like what, what was a result and what he influenced much right. more than Warhol's work himself. Yeah. So, there's that. Yeah. So, but after after the whole the whole bit, they actually have like, I don't want to call it a gift. Yeah, it's a gift shop. They had an awesome selection of photography books. Uh, there was one book on the uh, F64 group and everything. Yes. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm flipping through it. And uh, I had my uh, rangefinder that I'm actually, uh, Michael has been so kind to let me borrow here. Guy walks up to me and I, I have, so it's a Canon at QL17 G3, but I actually have a Mamiya strap. And the guy's like, what kind of Mamiya is that? So we actually had a really great conversation. He was telling me about how he shot film. You know, he was an older gentleman. And then I kind of realized, I was like, oh, I need to ask him about what his thoughts are on Kodachrome. The guy said, you know, you really don't realize how much you love something until you lost it. He just went into talking about just how awesome the colors were and everything and, you know, how it competed to in aspects if you expose it right and everything, how it competed to, to digital in many ways. Just in talking to him, I realized just how passionate he was about Kodachrome. I mean, I just said one word. I couldn't believe it. And this guy just kept going on for like 15 minutes. And But it, it, was, it was just absolutely amazing to see that it really was something that people were just so passionate about. I downloaded uh, Paul Simon's Kodachrome, you know, and I listened to it. Oh God, at least a hundred times just listening to the lyrics, you know, give me the blue skies, give me the greens of summer. 
it, it was just absolutely amazing to see how we kind of missed out. I never really shot it. What really triggered me to start to do this episode on Kodachrome was somebody posted on the forums saying, hey, I found this in a camera that I bought at a flea market. What can I do with it? And then people started commenting on it and saying, oh, well, maybe you can try to process it in C41 or E6. And I'm like, uh, let me let me ask uh, Michael on that one because I didn't no. even know. And, you know, I didn't know if you could cross-process it. So technically you can't. It, it doesn't even, it's not even compatible. Um, essentially, it's a black and white film that you add all the crap later. So, I mean, essentially, there's places like filmrescue.com. I think Rocky Mountain Photo are processing Kodachrome as a black and white film. I love the irony there. That one of the greatest color films ever. <laughs> and it's <laughs> death. Yeah. You get black and white. At that point, I mean, there may be some images you're like, well, I need to have this. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing where, Bill, you were talking about, there's images, just latent images on this film that you could have found in, like, a loved one's house or something, yeah. and you want to be able to see it. That, at the very least, you can get an image out of it in black and white. But it doesn't, it doesn't come out bad. And I've only ever seen images online. I've never actually held one in my hand to actually see what it looks like. Mm, to the but the, the scans... Be like, but the scans, you know, yeah. as long as it was a decent start off with, they're not. They're really not bad. They're probably right. actually some of these images. Mm. As, ah. as far as black and whites go, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And find yourself a, a cheap roll of Kodachrome somewhere. I got two at home. Shoot it and get it. <laughs> process as black and white. Yeah, well, it's twenty-five. Well, that's kind of real. Like four stops over. <laughs> Worth a shot, man. Yeah. Worth oh, just bracket. Dude. Just bracket the entire roll, man. Do you have like a, a, a an ISO five on your camera? Well, my my light meter goes down to ISO three, but that or no, it bombs out at six. That's right. That's, uh-huh. Yeah, bummer. <laughs> Just bracket everything. You'll yeah. get like four usable images out of it. It'd be so wasteful on Kodachrome though. Like I would totally get it if it was like uh, it's, it's, also the most, it's also the most expensive Kodachrome you'll ever buy too, because I I'm not sure. Off the, I can't quote. Price and for Bible and verse from like what film rescue is charging, but I don't think it's cheap. Okay, so I found I found the uh, blog here, uh, the photographer. This was actually a relatively recent post. Uh, it was in January of 2017 by a photographer named Kelly Shane Fuller. He is actually trying to figure out how to color process Kodachrome on his own. In this paragraph, he says, "I would say that I've got it about 80% of the way. I'll flat out tell you my results aren't perfect." Currently, they're not quite as saturated as Kodachrome typically is, but I'm tweaking my process constantly and I get a little closer every time. Recently, I've gotten some advice from an amazing former Kodak engineer who worked on the original Kodachrome and got some tips to get closer results. All that to say, I feel like I'm in the realm of good enough, though it's not 100%. That's that's pretty cool. That's dedication too. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of respect. If if that guy actually like gets to a point where he's like, just send your Kodachrome to me, but I can't promise. Oh, I'd do it. Dude, I would do it. I think he's in the film photographers Facebook group. Like there's a bigger group than the Atlanta. I think I remember seeing that come up in there at least. So it was interesting, you know, what really pushed me to kind of do this episode is A, I don't know much about Kodachrome and I, I just like to research stuff in general. And then realize that a lot of other people just don't really know 
that much about it other than the people that did shoot it that are in a generation that, you know, to a point where there may not be knowledge passed down, you know? And it's really sad to really think about that. It is. It's also, I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but for so many people, that film is their childhood. It's their life. It's like, you know, their important moments that were documented in Kodachrome. And I think that's why there's such a visceral reaction to it still. Like, I can't tell you how many times I see stuff posted by... um, Kodak Alara, Serviceman Kodak now. Right. Um, even like people like I know who work at Kodak, and somebody will be like, bring back Kodak. Like that's the first thing that I'm going to post on. <laughs> Regardless of it, it's like right. just become that like yeah. rallying cry. Yeah. Like, like you know, free bird. Is it, yeah. Yeah. Bring back, <laughs> it really is. Bring back Kodachrome. Uh, even at a convention, people were talking about. Granted, it was you know the buzz thing. It was just after Ectochrome was announced, and of course yeah. they mm-hmm. dropped in there. Yeah. CEO of Kodak dropped in there that like, oh well, we might think about Kodachrome. You know? Oh my gosh, that that actually probably picked up more press than the actual Ectochrome being coming coming back. Seriously. Steve Overman just just even mentioning, he's like, oh yeah, we're investigating and in bringing it Kodachrome back, and like literally the whole world went. <sighs> And then he had to step back from it. You know, it was well, like total buzzkill. It's all these things. <laughs> Even in Ectochrome, they've talked about like it's not as simple as just hitting the start button again. Yeah, it's they're reformulating the well, Ectochrome. It's going to. I, well, I was watching a do- little documentary about Kodak, and this was a few years ago, might be around 2012, 2015, somewhere in there. It was a little documentary, and it was talking about like they showed the room. They're like, yeah, this is the room where Kodachrome was made. And they were drawing salsa. <laughs> no, and like that's hilarious. Also, really sad. Yeah. But like that's the reality. It's like these machines, they may have them. I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert on the intricacies of the inner working of the Kodak factory. But I would imagine like they're like, well, bye, and traps them. But obviously, they've saved some things. Duh. But you know, yeah, like you're saying it's not just like, oh, I was walking in the room, trying to like hit the switch and. Bam, we got, we got well, slide films. Right. So many of these, it's what happened with Polaroid and everything too. Um, literally, companies that were supplying Polaroid the raw chemicals for their for Polaroid film don't exist anymore. Right. Like Polaroid, when they were going to cease production, they bought so much up and then were like, that's it, we're not getting any more. And they can't get any more. That's why Impossible Project had to start from square one. And that'd be the same thing even with Kodachrome. I'm sure some of the components that were used in the film don't exist anymore. Right. Or aren't in, they'd have to be reformulated. So even if they were to come out with a Kodachrome tomorrow, it wouldn't be the same. Mm-hmm. It's like the Ectochrome that's coming out right now. It's not going to, there were, there were four different versions of Ectochrome, I want to say, when they ceased production of it. I know there was like 200G, there was 100, there was mm-hmm. E somewhere in there. So there was these different varieties of E100. Nobody's seen yet what it's going to be. Like, right, we don't yeah. know what this Ectochrome 100... I think it's 100 years what it's Yeah. But we don't know what it's going to look like yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm to- totally going to be opening the can of worms thing. I'm probably going to be <laughs> the only person on this side of the table. But I think it would be absolutely cool if Kodak said, you know what? We're going to try to come up with uh, Kodachrome, like the colors, and reproduce all the colors in an E6 process. My perception on it is that, you know, the K14 process is a process that I kind of look at and go, it's probably too difficult to reformulate or something along those lines. It's too much research and development other than tweaking colors and then coming up with an E6 process and then coming out with something called like Kodachrome 3, whereas it's a new generation of that color that we're, you know, people are so drawn towards 
in Code Chrome. So, but I, I mean, I, th- I think yeah. people would just there be riots in the streets. I mean, <laughs> honestly, when it comes down to like at least right. among the old school photographers, people who have, or even like some of us who've never shot a roll of actual real Kodachrome, sure, it would always just their comparisons would be there from day one. And yeah, I would be like the sorry imitators of the throne. I think no matter even if it was a better film stock, it's hard to argue what better is, but technically sure. superior. Let's say sharper, more shadow more archival, better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the most latitude you've ever seen in yeah, a slide film. ever. Yeah, even that, I think people would say it's not as good I, because there's so much nostalgia. Like that's you know that goes to the whole thing. Like well, the question of well, why do we love Kodachrome? Why is there well, there's all this, there's history and culture surrounding it, but also, like, if you ignore all that and just look at an image, you're like, man, it's a perfect good film stock. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. Just, that alone is like, why do you like Kodachrome? Like, go look at a, a handful of really great images shot on Kodachrome, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. It's it just like inherent, intrinsic, bam, I understand, and I think that would be an issue. Well, we were talking about, we were talking about they brought back Ektar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is it's it's not a slide film, obviously, but it, it doesn't look really anything like the '90s version. It's a totally it's different a film, totally different film stock. So it, and it, it's just a moniker, it's a and, brand. Yeah, and I don't, and I don't. There wasn't the same thing attached to it. Like Kodak used Ektar or Ekta something for so many things throughout the years. Right. Yeah. It wasn't the same thing of like. Isn't there a phone called like the? They called it Ektra, which Ektra. is actually like they had a point and shoot in a kind of like a point and shoot camera that they based that off. Actually, I, I kind of want to buy that phone. Uh, I do too. That phone makes me want to. Android. Yeah, I, I still own Android, but I, I, I already use Android, so this is probably my next purchase. Um, but yeah, no, I, I really have no interest in seeing them try to try to do some bastardized version of, of Kodachrome in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe if they came out with a with an Ektachrome K. Yeah, something like that. Something that inspired that, by that inspired, inspired by, by the don't call. Yeah, as soon as they put the name Kodachrome on it, if it's not Kodachrome, it's a death sentence. You know, it's the same. It's yeah, the same, or it's the same yeah. way we look at we look at Ektar film right now. The way we look at Ektar film is, it's it's got real great saturation and it mimics a slide film. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's a way to, to to be able to get a slide film, a, a look of a slide film without having an actual positive image. Well, I think it would be kind of interesting to see. You the reception Kodak gets with the reintroduction of Ektachrome and then yeah you're gonna have the people that are gonna compare current day Ektachrome to the old days of Ektachrome and then you'll have the people that are going oh it's not the same and stuff like that but I kind of have a feeling that they would be feeling it out a little bit and seeing what people's responses are going to be and then kind of going back and say okay uh, this was totally awesome let's go ahead and try to take the money that we got from ectochrome and then use that as research and development in trying to bring back Kodachrome in a different form either would it whether it would be in e6 which you guys totally disagree but i i totally respect the fact of you know simplifying the k14 process to even like the e6 where you can get it down to you know just the color the second developer is all in one process so yeah i would would totally be okay with that and it's 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 also like it's also like the scout that just got wrong. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Scala's got 12 steps to it currently. Yeah, and I'm like, I if we can, we should do a separate episode just about slide film in general. Oh, absolutely. Which I would love to talk more about this. But like, Agfa, Agfa Scala was a black and white slide film that was discontinued when Agfa pretty much went away. 
Um, there's stuff being made under an Agfa brand now by like Haddocks and, and uh, do you know what process the Scala is in? The original Scala was a proprietary process. Oh. Like there were, I just because I fell in love with slides and black and white, and like there's a black and white slide film. I want to shoot that. You, there were <laughs> right. two labs in the states. One was in Florida, and you bought prepaid mailers for it, and you sent it to them, and they were the only place that did it. And then they stopped production of Scala. The labs all closed down. So really, it was a it was a precursor to what happened with Kodachrome, basically. But it's such a beautiful film. And now Adox has a branded film that, that has that Scala moniker on. And there's a foam pan, you know, home process that you can get. It's got one reagent step to it where you have to take it out of the can and re-expose it, and re-expose yeah. it, and then oh, go wow. through the thing. So I mean, it, it, it as a black and white film to. In that particular process, it's it's very involved. Yeah, but for trying me, to do that with with, with Kodachrome, yeah. that would be your next thing. Is you don't have giant labs that you had fifteen Wrong. years ago, twenty Absolutely. years ago. Mm-hmm. I bought ten rolls of the new Adox stuff, and I was going to experiment with it. I bought the, the, the chemistry, and I was going to see if it was going to be something feasibly I could offer here at the store. And I just got to read, and it's like that's a that's a heck of a lot of time during the day to to possibly you know and the amount of time that it would take me to to do it in any way appreciable form for people to be actually paying me for it i don't think anybody would that's fair yeah Yeah. and i was just going to say like that for my about branding something else as kodachrome or like a new version of kodachrome whatever it may be it's i think it's a similar thing that i feel about scout which was a film that meant a lot to me and like helped me grow like i took pictures some of the last time I saw it with my grandmother, I shot a bunch of film of Scala, like going on a trip with her to, to Canada. Um, and I love those images. There's so much, even of that time in my life, attached to it. I shot a roll of the new Scala that Michael gave me, um, actually, and a roll of Scala I had sitting in my fridge for about 10 years to this lab called DR5 that does black and white slide film processing. And they can do almost any film emulsion in a black and white slide. So I've got my film out there. Mm-hmm. And I'm waiting to see how it comes back. And if it doesn't match up to what this original Scala was, I'm probably never going to shoot another roll of it. Just right. Because I want, I want that feeling. But there was something about it. There was they used cardboard mounts. It had like official branding on the box when you got mm-hmm. back from this lab in Florida. It was like everything about it. Just like those Kodachrome slides. You you look at the old. They've got the Kodak logo on them. Yeah. It says Kodachrome yeah. specifically. There's something yeah. about that in red. In red versus yeah, and it was just so everything about it was so tangible. And so there's so much. It's so much bigger than just the images. There's major brand recognition with Kodak, right. obviously. I mean, it's still one of the world's most recognized brands. Yeah, absolutely. Even it's you know, it it had a fall. But yeah, and then you have that, and then you have Kodachrome. Like, it's their thing. You could ask them. You ask somebody what Veracolor Three is. Like, what? You're like, hey, what's Portrait Four Hundred? You ask them off the street. They're like, I don't know what that means. You say, what's Kodachrome? Anybody, virtually, you know, you run into on a daily basis knows Kodachrome. So it's just right. this thing that is, is bloomed and is a great summary of, yeah, I think, yeah. color color. I just don't Kodachrome to, to turn into some sort of bastardized, you know, sort of brand name. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, or something no, just to make, you know, 
make money. Ooh, we brought it back finally. Like, put yeah, in, you know, fair enough. Like, put them in yeah. Polaroid brand name on like crappy digital cameras and TVs. <laughs> or, yeah. The the last bit about Kodachrome um, that I found interesting at the last second in, amongst all of my research is that there is a movie. I found this on the IMDb. There was actually a movie uh, scheduled for sometime in 2017. Uh, I couldn't really find any much more information on it, but the movie is called Kodachrome, and the premise of it is called Set During the Final Days of the Admired Photo Development System Known as Kodachrome. A father and son hit the road in order to reach the Kansas Photo Lab before it closes its doors for good. Before we kind of comment on that, um, it it says the status is in post-production, but I did find it on a different website that it was something along the lines that the father was dying. I'm not terribly familiar with the names except for one. So the stars in this movie, Elizabeth Olsen, Ed Harris. Ed Harris is a total Dude, badass. Elizabeth man. Olsen is a badass. Is she? She's a Scarlet Witch in uh, the Avengers movie. Uh, yeah, she's awesome. Okay. And then Jason Sudeikis. Yeah, Jason Sudeikis. Yeah. Um, so that's a solid cast. That's, yeah. that's that's really good. That's pretty much it. I'm I'm really uh, excited to see what they're going to put out on that. It is scheduled to release in the U.S. sometime in this year. And then uh, the filming location: Toronto, Ontario. I mean Ontario. Ontario. Because <laughs> <laughs> my tongue, because my tongue totally screwed up on that. But I'm going right. to accept it. But uh, so yeah, that that's. Really interesting as far as what's going to happen, but that's actually interesting because there's a lot of Ontario that could be an analog for Kansas. Also, there's tax incentives. There is Uh, absolutely, and that's why they're there. And there's poutine. <laughs> no, that's all you need to make a movie. That really, that's all you need to make And there you go, movie magic. That's right. So, but um, if so any, if anyone knows of a quality poutine in the city of Atlanta, please let us know. That's pretty much it, guys. I had a lot of fun researching this. I, I had a blast talking about this to the group. I think what would be cool, even because so much of what Kodachrome is is so personal. I don't know if anybody like wants to comment on Facebook or wherever else about like their own stories or experiences with Kodachrome. I think it'd be really cool to hear it and even like absolutely sharing. It yeah, that'd be great. I'm just going to totally derail everything. I just came across an article: Japan Camera Hunter is making Street Pan 400 in 120 medium format. Yes, they yes. just they announced oh it a little God. while ago, but you finally taking pre-orders for it. Yes, pre-orders are available. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I totally that just that was just. <laughs> No, that was great. Man. Totally, I just saw that article throw up there, but uh, more, wow, more film so coming exciting. to the market yes. is always a good thing. Yeah. Oh man! All right, guys. Well, thank you for coming in and joining us uh, as we discuss uh, Kodachrome. Uh, also, I forgot to mention um, Kevin is also going to be uh, a regular. We just had so much fun with him uh, last episode. And plus, he he brings like our beard quotient up to you know like <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a pleasure, and I appreciate you know, you know, hanging out with you guys. All right, guys. Well, thanks again for uh, joining us. Comment on Kodachrome on any uh, outlet. You know, we're on Facebook, on YouTube. So. Do, do we have a MySpace page yet, though? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, that or a live journal. One of the two. <laughs> or Zango. Or yes. Xango. Yes. Fifth grade, I had Xango. Dude, we're, I'm, that was like senior high school. I had a Zanga. Uh, oh, man. I was also born in 95, so. I'm going. All right. <laughs> Good night, everybody, and uh, we will leave it on that bombshell. Good night. <laughs>